Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic is prison industry enterprise helping or exploiting prisoners. Let's ask Tim Grant, owner of a factory in an Arkansas maximum security women's facility. More than 2.3 million Americans are in prison and over 50% in federal lockup are there for drug offenses. Of the 9% of prisoners who are women, 75% have histories of severe physical abuse by their partner and 82% suffered serious physical or sexual abuse as girls. They are disproportionately black and the majority have minor children. Prisoners can be forced to work for minimum or no compensation. The International Labor Organization reported that 2000 to 2011, U.S. prison wages ranged between 23 cents and $1.15 an hour. Prison Industry Enterprise is trying a different approach, creating a for-profit manufacturing sector in prison that is a win-win for companies and inmates. Tim Grant is the owner of such a factory in an Arkansas maximum security... No, no, no. I know. I'm sorry. Tim, Tim Grant isn't the owner. He just runs it. Oh, okay. I stand corrected. Tim Grant runs such a factory in an Arkansas maximum security women's prison. He says he is giving prisoners decent wages, money to send home, skills to use outside, and a sense of value. Is this program helping or exploiting them? Is it threatening your job? Let's welcome Tim on our show, and let's learn more and see for ourselves. And now, here's Beth. Hi, welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Well, first I have to tell you that we are sitting in the middle of the no- of nowhere. Uh, I'm on an iPad trying to talk as loud as I can, and it's a miracle of technology that we are with you today, but we are so excited to be with you. So thanks for joining us. And uh, Tim is going to be joining us a bit later. Uh, he's going to be calling in. Uh, he's in an appointment, but he will call in when he can. And in the meantime, we're going to do something a little different with the interrevolutionary news. Well, I'll tell you why. Because James and I haven't had the internet hardly at all for nearly a week. So I haven't been watching the news. Now, you may not realize this, but we're always going through the news constantly, seeing what's going on in so many different sources. And it's like, oh my God, what's it like to live without the news? Well, uh, what we decided to do is to invite Todd Benton. Say hi, Todd. Hi. Hi. Todd, invite Todd Benton to join us. And he's going to tell us what news has happened. And I'm going to be on the spot to say something brilliant or uh, illuminating or just really dumb. I have no <laughs> idea which it's going to be. Uh, so he's going to do a couple of news stories, and uh, I'm going to listen and things go, oh, really? Did that happen? So I have to tell you, though, to be perfectly honest, that I did fl- uh, slip into uh, a uh, an Internet zone uh, about two days ago, and I opened the news, and I was like, uh, am I on the same planet that I was on last week when uh, I went away. So anyway, that'll give you an idea of how I feel about some of the news of the day. But in the meantime, so here's Todd. Well, first, I'd like to start with a roundup of the news coming out of the Republican National Convention, because it's been quite an interesting set of events. Um, 
First, Ted Cruz refused to endorse Donald Trump and was booed, as probably many of you know. His wife had to be escorted out by security. Uh, secondly, uh, there have been repeated calls that Hillary should either be jailed or and even executed. And finally, Trump was considering a fracking mogul as his energy secretary. So, Beth, would you like to comment on any of those? You know, I'm speechless. You know, the inner revolution is about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And I don't see any oneness, accountability, or mutual support coming out of the Republican convention, at least not what you have read to me. Uh, In addition to that, I can tell you that... uh, I did read before about the, uh, the the platform of the Republican Party, and there's no abortion for any reason, including rape or incest. There's, uh, you know, they want to roll back gay marriage. There's a lot of stuff that feels like, in my estimation, to be anti-oneness. But what is really shocking to me about this convention is the level of violence Uh, of some of these Republican candidates. Now, I am having a lot of trouble being in the oneness with this convention. See, we're trying to relate to people, to try to understand people. I'm having trouble. Normally, I can find some way to hook in to what people are feeling, why they would be like that, and so on. But I'm kind of disgusted because, honestly, I can understand... Uh, people being upset with Hillary Clinton for a number of reasons. Um, they, sh- they having her being executed as because uh, I happened to read the the news that day uh, was about her being uh, what was it a trade treason? It was treason. So I mean the the hyperbole. You know I don't like that she did what she did with her email, and I don't like the way that she handled. The inquiry about it because I felt like she was being secretive about it. But to go to those kind of extremes feels like such an agenda. Like, oh, we want to defeat this woman, so we're going to say anything. And it feels like just trying to ramp up the hysteria. And this is the thing that's so appalling to me about what you've been reporting to me, Todd, and the little bit that I saw. And that that was part of the reason that I I felt like, uh, where am I? You know, politics has always been a dirty game, but, and this is not saying anything new, I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. Now, there may have been stuff like this 100 years ago, but I'm not 100 yet. I'm only 71. So (laughs) anyway, but it's like there is no conversation about issues. It's just revving people up and getting them more and more upset. So let's say I understand that people are angry because they feel left out of the economy and there are people who are trying to exploit that to give these people a sense of power. And that's the sense that I'm getting and we're going to be talking more about the election next week. But the sense that I'm getting is that they are really trying to take advantage of the fact that people are feeling desperate or powerless and try to give them a sense of power by allowing them to throw bombs at other people. Now, I'm going to say something that 
you're going to say, oh, no, no, you're exaggerating it. But I want you to understand the essence of what is that I'd like to say, which is, isn't this what ISIS does, or ISIL as it's now called? They take people who feel kind of powerless and out of the loop and give them a bomb or a gun. And they say, there's your enemy. Go shoot him. This is your cause. And this is, to me, in essence, the same thing that's happening in this Republican convention, that they are saying, here, you feel powerless in your life, so here's a bomb, and here's your enemy, and go shoot him. And I don't mean physically, I'm talking about psychically. Now, I cannot imagine what it feels like to be Hillary Clinton today, regardless of whatever criticisms I may have about her as a person, to be sent that kind of negative energy by so many people and have it organized, uh, it feels vicious and very, very damaging. Uh, sometimes I wonder if we have not created the secret of uh, Hillary Clinton who has difficulty owning things by this kind of behavior. Now, I want to say in all fairness that I feel like the same thing has been done to Donald Trump. But uh, he has been so vicious that it's really not that uh, unexpected. And his, that is his politics. I don't think that is the politics. That's the platform of the Democratic Party is to get Trump by sending hate waves towards him. Because I do believe that there are real policy issues that need to be discussed. But I have also seen that a lot of people are all are picking on Trump like if he says anything that could be remotely construed as stupid they're all over him and that's been going on for a long time too and i hate to see that i think that the level of this uh, this uh, election is at a, at not only at the lowest i've seen when i was conscious but also that it is so based on hatred and the diminishment of the other human being that it's sickening. So we need an inner revolution in politics. That is for darn sure. And by the way, uh, Ted Cruz not endorsing uh, Donald. I would like to say that that's an act of courage in his part, but I have never felt that Ted Cruz was courageous I have always felt instead that he is calculating. And just as he calculated that he was going to rise on his, uh, you know, his uh, filibustering and trying to get the government down, I think he's doing the same thing with Trump. He's hoping that Trump will lose and he hopes that he will rise from that. Not that I think he should endorse uh, uh, Trump. And by the way, isn't it rather extraordinary that it's been reported because, again, this was showing up in the one day that I got to see, uh, you know, 15 minutes of news that Trump actually knew that Cruz was not going to endorse him and uh, that he invited him to speak anyway. So I think that's also very interesting. So it's part of the lack of oneness of our political system that we go at and we try to destroy other people and that we try to raise ourselves up by whatever means necessary. Say, Beth, I would like to add an additional comment. 
and that is uh, these attacks on Hillary. Uh, it's become a theme of this convention, the phrase, lock her up, lock her up. And it sounds to me like a lynch mob. Let's go get her, lock her up. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And, yes, and I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you, uh, James. In fact, I had the exact same thought, and I just didn't mention it right here, that it's a lynch mob that they're trying to create. And you know what happens to perfectly normal people when there is a lynch mob? They, the worst of them is fed, and they get all revved up, and whatever frustrations they're experiencing in their lives, they can now find some person who's less powerful than they are and just kill them. And there is that energy, I agree, and this is a sign, of course, of the desperation of our public, but I also consider it to be crass manipulation. Okay. So take it away, Todd. All I right. guess I had something to say on the topic. <laughs> I guess so. So for our second story, a little change of pace here. California breaks solar record, generates enough electricity for 6 million homes. California has hit a new solar generation record thanks to this week's triple-digit heat wave. The SF Gate uh, publication calculated that on Tuesday, the Golden State's power plants briefly generated enough electricity for more than 6 million homes. According to figures from the California's Independent Solar Operators Corporation, the ISO, which operates most of the state's grid, a whopping 8,030 megawatts of large-scale solar power was generated at 1.06 p.m. on July 12th, nearly doubling the amount of solar energy produced in mid-2014 and nearly 2,000 megawatts higher than in May 2015. So the uh, ISO president and CEO Steve Berberick said that this solar production record demonstrates that California is making significant strides forward in connecting low-carbon resources to the grid in meeting the state's goal of reaching 33% renewables by 2020. I just think that's awesome. I do, too. I think it's fantastic. And which well, I'm so glad that you shared that story. Uh, by the way, I didn't comment on the fact that Trump is considering a fracking mogul for the energy secretary, but they wanting, the Republican platform, is wanting to, uh, to end any kind of uh, support for uh, clean energy and... That is disgraceful. So it is wonderful to hear this news. And this reminds us that if we are feeling despair about the state of consciousness in the political arena and the fear about what might happen next, we can also take heart that there are people, normal people, who are going forward doing good things. <laughs> that the world is not only what's happening in the political arena right now, and uh, that so we can take heart uh, about that. So I, we better have one. I think we have one more story. We, we better keep short because our yes. guest is waiting for us. And I'm so glad that he's with us. Yes. So the third story, and I'll make this short. New documents reveal oil and tobacco industries, dirty history of working together and how they collaborated to con us all. Uh, I guess things keep looking worse and worse for the oil industry after documents dating back as far as the 40s revealed companies coordinated to cover up the industry's role in climate change. Several corporations, including ExxonMobil, now face a fraud probe and mounting public outrage. Many have said the climate change cover-up rivals that of Big Tobacco's decades-long scheme to mislead the public about the health risks of smoking. Uh, the assertions they, uh, the oil industry continues to shrug off. Here's the new information about this, that 
the oil industry has known about the potential role of fossil fuels and CO2 emissions at least since 1957. And they have been collaborating with the tobacco companies. And the tobacco companies actually got their playbook from the oil industry, not the other way around. Isn't that amazing? I thought it was the other way around. Oh, well, uh, I'll tell you something. This story is huge. And it really uh, wakes us up out of some kind of uh, a sleep state where we think that our companies, our, the corporations, American corporations, are really looking after us because they're American and they're patriotic. But this is not patriotic. This is about exploitation, which is so interesting because we're here today, and thank you so much, Todd, for doing this for us. Um, we're here today to talk to Kim, Tim Grant, who is has his own story about what he's trying to do to change some of the exploitative conditions in prisons. And they're doing it through uh, private enterprise. So, you know, private enterprise can be good, it can be bad. So I'd like to know all about this, and we'd like to welcome you to the show, Tim. Hi, Beth. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. Thanks for having me uh, with you and your listeners today. Hi, welcome. Well, Tim... I'm going to let you, I didn't even have my notes with me because as I explained before you got on the air, uh, I'm sitting here in the middle of nowhere in a motorhome on a Wi-Fi <laughs> and uh, okay. we're just grateful that we're on. So I don't have all of my notes, but can you talk about what it was, what is different between the uh, prison industry that you have been involved with and what has typically been there? No, Absolutely. So my company uh, at the time, before I stepped down, uh, we approached the Arkansas Department of Corrections and uh, inquired uh, in response to a, to a public bid they had to participate in something they call PIECP, and it stands for Prison Industries Enhancement Certification Program, and commonly referred to as PI. And as you mentioned, it's a, it's a public-private partnership where the outside uh, company, in this case the company I was running at the time, uh, comes forward with jobs and opportunities, and the, the prison system provides a screened list of eligible inmates. Um, this is very different than, than, a, than a jail setting or uh, with the inmates that we're talking about are inmates that would not necessarily, in fact, aren't eligible for any type of a work release program. And I think, as you mentioned in your notes uh, that, I, that I saw posted that before the call, you're right. Uh, you know, for most women uh, or men in the prison, their uh, their, their work is uh, is not paid. Meaning, the activities that they perform in and around the prison, from working in the kitchen, working in the laundry, uh, cleaning uh, restrooms, mopping halls, doing maintenance, and the like, uh, as you pointed out, those are typically not compensated, or they're compensated minimally. Um, the the the, uh, the PIECP or PI program that we've been a part of now for a little over 10 years brings in uh, good paying jobs that start uh, at minimum wage and above and, uh, uh, and give these inmates, in our case women, uh, many of whom are serving uh, life sentences. Some have life without parole. Others have opportunities to parole from the system. And others are serving uh, uh, period certain terms, five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever the case may be, but they have a, they have a parole date. 
what we're providing uh, uh, these women, and in fact, we've been, we've ha- we have accompanied some of them uh, in our tenure uh, uh, tenure with this program to the parole board, and are able to validate that the particular inmate uh, in question at the time uh, has a work history uh, that she has been gainfully employed, uh, promoted herself. Uh, and uh, uh, has a skill set and even the promise of or the opportunity for employment at our plant outside of the prison uh, system, but in the same state. And, and that makes a huge difference, uh, I think, because you know, the, the stats that I saw um, are that in, in the United States, most uh, people leaving prison leave with uh, $75 or less than a bus ticket. Um, juxtapose that. Yeah, ju- juxtapose that, Beth, to the, to, the, to the inmates that are leaving our program. They have a job skill. They have money in the bank. Uh, they have demonstrated that they can work, uh, you know, in a cooperative work environment. Uh, and the benefits aren't just that, although we, we like to think that, uh, you know, that that's actually a very tangible step toward, you know, reducing recidivism and repeat offenders. The other thing that's been pointed out in our program uh, through the Department of Corrections is that, for these women that have uh, gainfully employed eight hours a day, and sometimes six, um, that there's less inmate-on-inmate violence, there's less altercation between inmate and correction officer, uh, and so the economics of this program uh, uh, that we have are, are as follows. The, 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 the state of Arkansas, in our case, takes, a, takes 45% back uh, of the wages to uh, reimburse the Arkansas taxpayer for the custodial care uh, and, and housing and, and feeding of, of the inmate. They pay into a mandatory victim restitution fund of 5%. The, the uh, inmate and, does this. The prisoner does this, not the state. I that's just correct. Want to make clear. They become, yeah. It comes out of their paycheck. So mm-hmm. out of their paycheck comes at least 50%. And then in some cases, depending on an inmate's personal situation, there may be there may be child support that comes out, um, but if that's not applicable, it's not applicable. The balance of the of the monies that are earned um, uh, go on to account for the inmate. Uh, the inmate employee can redirect those funds uh, uh, based on the rules of the of the prison system, uh, either quarterly or semi-annually, to send money home to a parent who might be raising a child for a for a for a woman who's incarcerated. Uh, they could send that money home or direct that money. Uh, just as any of us might choose to spend, uh, you know, or support family members, uh, you know, what have you. The, the inmates in our program are also uh, eligible for a 401k program, company uh, 401k program, and I was told that our company was the first to, uh, our company was the first to, uh, to do, a, to, to include the inmates in, uh, in such a program. So, Beth, I, I like to think that it's a social program that's good for business. Um, again, this is not conscripted work. Um, this is uh, uh, the, the prison system tells us of uh, the 1,100, uh, approximately 1,100 women uh, uh, that, have, that have indicated that they want to work or would like to work. The system identifies for us those women who are eligible to work. They must be pursuing a GED. They must not have had any sort of, a, of an altercation uh, or disciplinary action on file in the last six months. Um, and then once the prison system identifies those women that are eligible to work, then we go in and do pre-work screening just as we do, you know, in our other plant. Uh, can you read, can you read a ruler? Can you read, uh, are you colorblind? Uh, you know, what's your, what's your, what's your manual dexterity? Because a lot of the stuff we do is fine work. So, you know, it, it's, it's 10 plus years now. Um, and, uh, and, and we're very proud of it. 
Yes, I, I can imagine. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. So uh, you mentioned the 401k, but that the, uh, the inmate can put the money in a savings bank. That's correct. Okay, so they come out with a nest egg that came from them. Now, do That's they correct. pay any taxes on top of all of those uh, fees that go to back to Arkansas? Uh, they, they pay taxes as any, as any wage earner would on the balance that they get to keep. Okay, they pay it on the balance. Okay, so it's kind of like they're paying for their room and board. That's correct. And so, because um, it could sound like, oh, they're taking back 40%, but then you think, well, what does it cost you to live? You know, it's like, well, right. how much savings do I have? Hey, how much savings do we have? I don't think I, we right. have any. So uh, this is pretty remarkable. Uh, what kind? Well, first, let me ask you. You you were run um, you were running a successful company before this company uh, went into the prison. That's correct. We we actually the jobs that we moved, Beth, that, that really were the, the the start of the of our of our uh, experience in the prison system were jobs that I moved from Canada when I shut down a plant uh, that we had just outside of Toronto, Canada, and uh, and then uh, moved uh, you know moved moved those jobs into uh, you know into the United States and then pursued the the uh, the, the prison uh, system. Now you might wonder why I would do that because there's obviously an economic advantage for us as well. And if you'd like, I'll speak to that. Yeah, sure, go ahead. So, what makes the economics work? What if you if you assume that getting a job and getting a skill and building savings is good for the inmate. Um, and if you assume that less violence between inmates and corrections officers is good for the system, and you assume that paying the Arkansas taxpayer back for those women who are gainfully employed uh, is good for the taxpayer, then it begs the question, in addition to being a good program that I feel good about, it's also economically advantageous for us because the state of Arkansas provided the, uh, the, the, the manufacturing plant. They, they built the structure. Um, we finished it out, you know, to the specifications that we had, but they build and provide a structure at a nominal, uh, at a nominal uh, annual lease rate for us. Um, we also don't have the payroll burden associated with uh, uh, general employment, meaning uh, we don't have sick days and vacation days and health insurance and the like because the, the prison system provides health care for, for the inmates when they're there. So the approximate 35% payroll burden that's typically associated with, with the average employee for benefits I don't have and I also, I have marginal incremental manufacturing capacity, um, uh, and, and my overhead there is minimal because I, I didn't build the bill. This is so fascinating. Now, I'm going to ask you, uh, maybe this is a naive question, but it sounds awfully good. Why isn't everybody doing it? And, uh, in fact, I, and you know, I want, to, I want to address a question that I bet people are wondering, which is, is this taking away your jobs? Well, there's two things about it. I mean, you mentioned that these, this plant came from Canada. But even if it didn't, the fact is that prisoners are people, too, and are part of our population. And we have a tendency to think about prisoners as other, you know, like they're prisoners, they're inmates, they're violent, they're somehow different. And that they aren't us, but the fact is they are us. And uh, for example, when we we reported uh, that the vast majority of people in federal prison are on drug offenses, well, gosh, I mean, I know a lot of people who've been on drugs or 
have been involved with drugs. In fact, some of you out there may have been on drugs. So these people got caught or whatever the situation is. So it, it's not like prisoners are a different species of people. And so this, if you think about it, if prisoners are working in prisons, sometimes at really very low wages, that is depressing the labor market. Uh, you know, the less anybody gets paid, the more it hurts everybody. It's the same issue about immigrant labor. You know, why don't you bring in undocumented workers who are then insecure, can't uh, imp- improve their conditions, pay them less, and then you have the rest of the people getting mad at them. Well, what about doing it the other way around? What about give, you know, paying them decent wages? And then right. everybody's well, wages go up. Right, and again, we're differentiating between, you know, chores that are, you know, to, to, to draw an analogy right to my kids. I mean, chores around the house or around the prison. Um, you know that that are that are that are either that are either not paid or not compensated or compensated minimally versus versus you know public enterprise outside you know that comes from outside the walls of the prison. Um, well, there's also the- prison labor. Excuse me, I just want to say there's other prison ca- kinds of prison labors like we've all heard about license plates that are made by inmates. That's not right. just chores. So there right, is right. Uh, there are people who are working and are still not getting the kind of conditions and support that your program is, you know, saying that it's giving. Right, right. And I think that that's, yeah, the license plate one is, is particularly interesting because the state calls that, you know, work for the state. Um, some of the, some of the uh, other uh, prison industries programs that are operating in the prison systems are building uh, supplies that are consumed inside the prison. They may build desks and chairs and, and the like. But one of the things, Beth, that I think that I'm, that I'm really most proud of is that we have humanized the, the, the labor force among our employees who happen to be inmates, when they come through the door from the barracks in the in the in the prison system, and they come through the standalone facility, uh, you know, into our plant, they're our employees. And you know, I, I smile when I think over the years of, of you know, we had to fight for this program. I had to fight my board of directors to to give me the opportunity to do this. I had to fight with my current employees to support a program that was going to be in a prison. Uh, some of whom, you know, might have had or had, uh, you know, uh, a contact or had been victims themselves. So there was some there was real bias there. I had to convince uh, uh, my customers to uh, let us build uh, some of their product in the prison. But as some of the customers would invariably want to tour the facility, it was really very interesting because most most of us had never been to prison. It's a very it's an environment that none of us would want to be in, even in the best of circumstances. And yeah. it's very sobering, you know, when you go through the seven steel doors and now all of a sudden you're looking at a bunch of women, 135 women, all working away. And I, I, Beth, if this happened once, it happened a hundred times. I'd have a customer come up and very quietly whisper into my ear, well, you know, can I, can I, who builds our product, right? They wanted me to point out the line and I said, well, come with me. And I would take them and I would introduce them or our management team, the supervisors on, you know, on site. Uh, would introduce them uh, by name to the women uh, who were building their product. And, and it was a really very interesting thing that happened. One, it was very humanizing because the, uh, the customer realized that these women understood uh, uh, the importance of what they were building for our customer. They knew enough about our customer to know uh, their, our customer's product line and to, to be able to recite and, and, and affirm you know, our concern for quality. Um, and a discussion would break out. And, and invariably, after we all left the facility and went off to dinner or lunch, 
that conversation would come back up again, and then you know the the customer would want to know well, what was Mary what what is Mary convicted of what what is what is yeah. Diane in for, and you know I didn't really go there um, because to me it didn't matter. I never looked that up. It's publicly available, um, you know. But when I go and 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 at the time when I would go regularly and talk to our employees, uh, you know, at uh, on the status or, of the company, I would do the same for for the uh, for the employees at, at our at our prison facility. I would field their questions, and it was just more there was more humanity um, because I think prison's a very dehumanizing place. Absolutely. In fact, this is why this is so important for us in the innerrevolution.org is that this is oneness. I mean, you're recognizing the humanity of somebody that you would normally think of as dirt, not human. Uh, And it's so revealing when you begin to talk to people and you see their intelligence, the light in their eyes, their story, whether they're, quote, rightly or wrongly convicted you are talking about a human being with human intelligence who had experience in life that drew them to do a particular action, whether it had to do with family dynamics or it had to do with their social class, the opportunities that they did or did not have. You know, how many times have we seen this and heard about this that so many of the people who are in drug, who are drug dealers, were not necessarily drug addicts themselves, but they were looking for some way that they could earn money. And it's like, okay, these are intelligent human beings. And I love what you're doing because you're trying to use that intelligence and to validate the value of the person who probably doesn't get a hell of a lot of validation. All right, no, that's exactly right. And and you know when you you can tell when you see somebody that begins to develop self-respect, whether it's in your children, and they build confidence, and you see it in their eyes, and they feel better about themselves. And uh, again, some of these women are never leaving, um, but they still feel good, and they're, the time that they're spending is productive, and and they're doing something. For some of these women, Beth, it's the first time in a lifetime they've earned an honest paycheck. And the other thing that 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 and this is this is kind of interesting, and I, I struggle with this one. But yeah. my, 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 my hope was that with this program and a differentiated cost model that didn't have the overhead of a building and didn't have the payroll burden of medical and payroll burden, et cetera, that I would be able to go compete in a way that I couldn't in my, our plant outside the, outside the prison, compete with China and compete with Mexico as more and more of my customers were uh, recognizing that, you know, labor is a commodity. In a global economy, labor is just, an, you know, is another commodity, and, and it seeks out, you know, the lowest cost. And, and yet I was confronted with the fact that, you know, I could not, uh, uh, it, it was worse when it started, but, I mean, I can't go compete with $3.75 an hour U.S. equivalent in China. I can't even yeah. go with the prison plant. I can't even compete 100% with, uh, with Mexico. And what I found so disturbing is, you know, in our country, we're taking U.S. taxpayer dollars appropriated by Congress to the Department of Defense, who's awarding uh, contracts to military contractors who are taking those jobs, uh, and these are skilled and semi-skilled jobs. Uh, we're building for weapon systems. We're building security systems, command and control systems, all kinds of things, and they're taking those jobs to Mexico. And even with the prison 
uh, cost advantage or the, or the differentiated cost model, I still can't compete. Wow. We're taking, we're taking those jobs and, and we're, and, 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 and the taxpayer dollars behind them when we're, and we're, we're, we're spending that money in Mexico. And it just, it, it's frustrating to me. Well, you know, I mean, Mexican people need jobs too, but I think this, uh, but I totally understand what you're saying. And I also think that if this goes back to the point I was trying to make about the answer is to raise everybody's wages. Everyone in the world needs to be earning more money. I mean, when you travel in the third world or even if you just read about it, but if you're actually there and you see the kind of conditions that people are working under, the people who are making our clothing, for example, uh, the amount of pollution that we're dumping willy-nilly and in other countries because they don't have to live up to the few environmental regulations we have, uh, the, the the conditions that people are working under. And so instead of saying, well, okay, now we have to cut our wages in order to match that so that everybody does badly. I mean, that's right. insane to me. That's an inhumane and it's a very stupid right. system. We've been talking right. Right. on this show about income inequality and how if you don't pay people anything, they can't buy anything. I mean, you're right. going to have people who are alienated, people who are going to be using drugs. Uh, you're going to have people who are, you know, violent, uh, who are angry. And people who are starving and who are unhealthy and who are going to commit crimes and it's like it's insane. Right, and Beth, I, I've seen that. I've seen that firsthand. I've toured. Uh, I've toured plants in Mexico. I mean, in uh, Mexico and China and elsewhere in the world. But on a recent visit to China, I, I observed a barefooted man with a five-gallon paint bucket between his feet and a and a, and a regular uh, household drill mixing uh, uh, polyvinyl chloride PVC plastic in powder form with no respirator. Um, I mean, it, it's just deplorable. And here's the problem, as you pointed out. That is not a good thing, because we raise minimum wage in this country to $15 an hour. That's fine. I get that. When, it, when, when, it, when one's boat goes up, everyone's goes up. But here's the problem. Yeah. As, as the owner of a small manufacturing company, the folks in Mexico aren't going to do that. The folks in China aren't going to do that. And they don't have the health care mandate to provide insurance for employees over 25, which we had, you know, almost 300. Um, and it makes us absolutely even more uncompetitive uh, in, a, in a world in a world economy where 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 the same uh, uh, focus and expense and regulation and I'm not saying it's a bad thing uh, with respect to EPA with respect to uh, with respect to protection of the worker uh, you know you go into our plant and, and people are using volatile compounds under under fume uh, uh, you know uh, uh, fume stations with uh, proper respiratory gear we test the air that's not being done in China and, and so no. here's a and here's another reality. I mean, I, I was absolutely appalled to see this guy barefooted mixing PVC powdered yeah. compounds in a bucket. Yeah, yeah. I, it's 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 shocking, isn't it? I mean, it's really really shocking. Well, part of the problem may be that uh, the international labor movement has been eviscerated, and yeah. uh, you know, if people were able to, I mean, there's more and more places where the the unions have been attacked whether you think that unions are the answer or not there may be other answers but by doing that not only have american workers suffered but but workers around the world suffer when we don't support unionization but we're so polarized in our world with between us and them it's like we want to have the money for ourselves 
and we don't realize that we are destroying the very world that's supporting us. That right. In that factory, they're probably also dumping toxic fuel, uh, you know, materials into the earth. The right. as, as people all over the world are polluting more and more, and these are not necessarily locally owned companies. Many of these are internationally owned companies by well, our own the, that, billionaires. That's the thing, Beth. I mean, I, you know, I, I struggled with it as situational ethics, right? Why is the situation of, you know, a barefooted worker with no respirator and poor equipment, um, uh, you know, why is it okay that Global Company X, a customer of mine, has no problem sourcing their product in China when, when they could not run their own plants in the United States and don't run their own plants the same way. Why is it okay? Why is it okay there? And it could be rationalized despite a global... I, I love these mission or vision statements because I, yeah. have a tendency to, I have a tendency to ask customers about them when I notice that, uh, that what they say and what they're doing are, are two different things. Oh. Um, yeah, that's kind of a delicate, kind of a delicate discussion. Beth, that's probably best left for people like you because you know I do that and, and you know I walk out without a customer, right? But right. these are the kind of things. These are the kind of things that we have to ask. I mean, you know, polluting. You know, we, we share this planet, and and if we're not conscious of that, uh, you know, and and yet we will go and use someone's perhaps uh, uh, minor uh, child in another country where that's not frowned on. Uh, and it's not problematic, but it wouldn't be acceptable here. Why is it okay elsewhere? Well, and it isn't, and it isn't. You know, this reminds me, we had uh, some news items about the tech industry. We we interviewed some people from tech, but about how the tech industry, which looks so progressive here, is using child labor, is polluting uh, we had an interview with uh, a guy who did a, a, a film called The True Cost, which showed you about fast fashion and how it is being done at the expense of uh, workers around the world it, in shocking conditions and, again, polluting our planet that we all share. And that, and that ultimately redounds to all of us. I mean, the rivers go into the oceans. The oceans are polluted. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, it's the level of unconsciousness that we share around the globe is frightening. And we do know that uh, a very a handful of millionaires, billionaires, what was it, 62 people in the world own the um, same amount of wealth as half the world's population. And these people have inordinate amount of power. They're in their own little bubble. They live their own existence. They are not trained to care or to think or to think holistically. The, the, our system is based on profit, not on consciousness. And so people like you are being forced to compete in the most unconscionable way. And what I, you know, I just really admire the fact that you're trying in your way, in some sphere, to say, well, here's a pocket where I can make a difference and I want to do that. But most uh, people, unfortunately, they just do whatever is expected, whatever is socially acceptable, and they don't think outside of that and they don't realize that we're living in one world, that we're sharing this earth, and that if people in in another country are getting communicable diseases 
because of their living conditions, that person could give that to you. Yes. You know, yes. We, and I think, and I, I think we, it's a call on managers and owners, even in big companies and small, to, to be able to manage, you know, obviously we're expected to preserve shareholder value and we're expected to and measured on, you know, how, how, how profitable we are. But I think there's also got to be somewhere on the compass a consciousness and an, and an ethic that says, I'm, I'm not willing to do these things even, yeah. even to make a profit. And, yeah. Yeah. and uh, you know, I, I think that, that that's a, I think that's got to be a call among people that own and run businesses that get to make those kinds of decisions about what they are and aren't willing to do. You are so right. Uh, there was something uh, in our interview uh, about the true cost. Andrew Morgan was the name of the filmmaker. Uh, and he, uh, there was an interview of a guy who was uh, running a factory. I think it was in Bangladesh. I don't recall. And he That's talked correct. about the fact that he had to undercut himself because he was going to be undercut. It's like he kept getting the message from the people who owned those companies who were not from Bangladesh, of course, that he had that they were in a more competitive market and he had to cut. So, you know, you think that, oh, things are getting better, but they aren't because it's not just companies in the U.S. who have to compete. It's people in the, you know, companies in the third world have to compete with other companies in the third world. So That's everybody... Cool. It gets pushed down and down and down, and we wonder why there's so much income inequality and that all, so much of this money is going back to the top. And, you know, it, we, uh, before you came on the show, Tim, we were talking about the Republican convention, and we were talking about some of the politics and the beliefs, and it is just appalling to me that we are being separated from one another, that people who are in bad shape are being turned who are turning against people who are in worse shape instead right. of everybody being called to a higher degree of accountability I gotta ask you what do you think it was that got you caring about this I mean what is it in your history that made you care enough to do this well the, the first thing that, that I think really motivated me was that uh, um, I did not want to participate and try, I, I lacked the resources, quite frankly, to do it. But even if I had, I, I did not want to go into other countries and, and subject employees to conditions that I couldn't, that wouldn't subject our employees here to. And I wouldn't want to use somebody's 16 or 17 year old daughter in a way that I wouldn't want my own child. The, the, you know, I mean, it just, it just didn't seem, you know, I, I really wanted to say, okay, you want to talk about something different? Here's something different. It's federally regulated. It's, uh, it's state regulated. It's above board. It's minimum wage and above. And here are the rules of conduct. And no one hears a child. And, you know, it's OSHA. Uh, you know, it's ISO certified. It's OSHA compliant. Um, you want to talk about a difference? You know, that, that sometimes low-cost manufacturing does not have to mean out of the country. Um, and, uh, you know, you asked me a question earlier about, uh, you know, why more companies don't do this. Um, there are a number of companies that do, but not nearly as many as I would like to think, because uh, I think people just don't think about it. And, and you know, I did it as to try to address and change the discussion. 
from, well, Tim, do you have a plant in Mexico, or Tim, do you have a plant in China, or Tim, do you have a plant in, in uh, Czechoslovakia, um, or South Africa, or Cambodia? And the answer to all those questions was no. But I had to have something else to talk about. And then I started getting wrapped up in stories here, and, uh, and you know, what we were doing, and I, I felt even stronger about, you know, why I could advocate a program like this, and why I couldn't advocate or participate in programs, you know, outside of uh, you know outside of the U.S. that uh, that, uh, that that weren't right. You know, this is a, a fascinating topic because there are so many aspects to this. By the way, some of the wages you pay are quite a bit above minimum wage. I think you should share that. Yes, the the the, the inmates, the women in our plant inside the prison, they're able to differentiate themselves. You know, in, 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 in pay is they differentiate themselves in pay grade. So there are, there are lead positions that come up. They can take additional training and, and work into a, to a more skilled, uh, uh, you know, part of the assembly process and then they're paid accordingly. Um, we also have, uh, just so we're clear, the, I have, we, we, at that time we had a number of employees that would show up to the prison facility who were, uh, managers, engineers, uh, supervisors who were non-inmates. Uh, non-inmate employees, at, but yet they showed up to the prison plant, you know, just as the rest of our employees show up at our other plant, or I go to, or I used to go to my office. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that uh, just to make just to make that clear. So, but personally, I'm asking you a kind of a personal question: like, why do you care? Um, because I don't think. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I get capitalism, and I have no problem with that. But unchecked capitalism is a problem. It doesn't always make the best decisions for everyone. It doesn't always make the best environmental decisions. It finds a million ways to justify things that, that, that aren't morally or ethically right. Um, and, you know, I want it to be different. And, you know, I don't run anything as big as General Motors, but it's not an insignificant company uh, size-wise either at the time. And, and, you know, I just wanted to hold us to, to, to do something better and do something right and still be proved that we could be profitable. Well, did this come from, I mean, did you have this kind of consciousness before, or did this happen to you uh, later on while you were... You know, I, I think it evolved, Beth, because, I mean, as I started to see the impact we were having, you know, on, uh, you know, I mean, candidly, I looked at it first as a program that I could sell and was a, you know, was a, was a cost differentiator, incremental, you know, manufacturing capacity. I used all those words. But then when you start to understand the people involved, uh, and you see visiting day. I, I I never want to do that again. But when I was there for one of the one of the visiting days, uh, you know, when the children would come in to see their moms or aunts yeah. or grandmothers, yeah. um, I, I never I, I I can't handle it. Beth. I I never want to do yeah. that again. But I, to think that we're yeah. part of of helping you know uh, these women. Some of the letters I've gotten from parents, um, and it's not uncommon that at that time for over a ten year period, I would get letters at Christmas. And they would thank me and the management team for, for creating the opportunity that, that you know, that, that gave their, their incarcerated, you know, child, a, you know, a, a something to work for, something to live for, um, something to do, something to apply yeah. themselves toward. And, and so, you know, it started out, I'd like to think I had, a, I had you know, a couple extra, you know, uh, 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 legends on my compass, but the rest of it evolved. That's very, very interesting. Well, you know, I'd like to say, and I'm sure you feel the same way, is that the mass incarceration in this nation is a shame and that there has to be a way. But there is no reason that the USA should have the highest level of incarceration on the planet. 
Um, and so there's a lot that needs to happen in the prison system, a lot more rehabilitation, a lot of changes in the way people are sentenced. Uh, but you're, you're not taking that piece on, but you're saying, okay, if we can't burn the prisons to the ground, what can we do? And, um, you know, and I think that's really good. I think if every one of us looks at, I can't change everything, but what can I do? That's really the answer. I think when we get on, I know it sounds hack, but it's so profoundly important. When I get up no, in the is. morning. It's, and it's, it's, it's the Michael Jackson line, right? The man in the mirror, you know, I mean, uh, change begins with us. And, and you're right, on whatever scale, large or small, uh, maybe it's just with our, you know, maybe it's just with, uh, you know, what, what did Mother Teresa say? I mean, if you want to change the world, start with your family. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's sort of just the next, the next, you know, then, then why can't I have the same, you know, why, why can't I treat inmates or employees the same way as I, you know, I mean, it goes from there. And I think there's something to that. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's like, it's, it's the inner revolution. It's we, we have to change ourselves and our attitudes towards one another and when we change that, we begin to see the bigger picture. And the reason that I, I love that we're talking about this today, and we're, we're almost at the end of our time, of course it flew, uh, is that people are so upset right now. So many people read the news and just feel like, oh my God, the world is, you know, is coming to an end, and, or it should. And I, you know, I really appreciate that. But in the, we may not be able to stop everything or change everything, at least not right now. But we have to start and do something. You know, find an arena where you can make a difference, where we can really encourage oneness, accountability, and mutual support. Shift our thinking and shift our perspective, the way we treat our families, the way we treat one another, the way we treat everyone, and to keep reminding ourselves that just because people have labels on them doesn't make them different. You know, when you look at the elder care and elder abuse, and you say, well, okay, thank God that's not me. And then prisoner abuse, well, thank God that's not me. Or the abuse of black people, well, thank God that's not me if we happen not to be black. Or the abuse of women, you know, thank God that's not me. Well, it is me. So anyway, it's like, you know, it's we are all people, whether we're Muslims or we're disabled or we're old. We're all people. We all feel. And by the way, so do the animals. So <laughs> the, uh, before we I say goodbye and thank you, Tim, uh, James, would you tell us what we're doing next week? Yes, be glad to. Uh, next week's topic, Ego, Politics, and the 2016 Elections. A penetrating commentary from our host, Beth Green. We hope. We hope. Guest host Helen Halix will be interviewing our own Beth Green on the latest shenanigans of the 2016 elections. Focusing on the conventions, including the Democratic, which will be in its last day of their convention next week, and any other mayhem that will have just occurred. What do the 2016 elections say about the state of consciousness in our nation? What does the ego have to do with it? Tune in for a primer on what the ego is and isn't, and how the ego is impacting the presidential race, the electorate, and the candidates. Expect death's wit and wisdom and the debunking of the pomp and the self-congratulatory rhetoric but also expect a perspective that sees past the obvious and helps us gain strength and hope in the midst of some disturbing realities and damaging nonsense. Please join us live if you can, so you can call in with your questions and comments. We are all in this together. Tune in, and now for a final word. 
Well, I would like to ask you, Tim, if you had 30 seconds, what would you like to say from your heart to our audience? I, uh, wow, that's a. Um, I think I'd like to say that if that if we if we subscribe to the inner revolution and the, and the principles of, of self awareness and consciousness, that um, uh, try to challenge yourself to see how far uh, you can take that as an individual. Because I think, you know, while while not all of us may own you know or run a company, uh, there are other things that we can do that we just haven't thought about, and uh, it may be uh, something we do in the schools or in the churches or in the community. Uh, to, uh, to 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 demonstrate that and to and, and to bring that uh, you know bring that to others. So um, uh, when when you think you don't have an opportunity, maybe it's a good opportunity to sit down and maybe reconsider what opportunities may be there you just haven't really thought of yet. Great great words, and I also say go to the innerrevolution dot org, and we have lots of things that you can do to help as well. So God bless Tim. Uh, Thank you for sharing this. Uh, I'm sure a lot of pe- this is a complete surprise to a lot of people. And uh, be well. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.